Thank you very much indeed, Richard, for that really thoughtful introduction. Um, you've mentioned a lot of things that I'll be addressing in this paper and that I hope we can come back to in the discussion afterwards. And thank you also for inviting me to be here today. It's really a pleasure to be here. I've never been to Garrett's Temple before, but it's really a, a fascinating environment. Um, and I'd like to thank everybody who's, who's made it possible for me to be here today and for this event to take place. Of course, I don't have to tell this audience about Marx's admiration for Shakespeare. Richard has just reminded us that his daughter, Eleanor, was apparently not exaggerating when she famously declared that by the time she was six, she knew scene upon scene of Shakespeare by heart. Even a casual reader of Marx can see the effects of this enthusiasm. As Christian Smith has recently reminded us, Marx quotes from or alludes to 29 of Shakespeare's plays. He peppers his work with references to characters like Falstaff, Dogberry, and Mistress Quickly, and the frequency of Marx's allusions have made Shylock a veritable paradigm of the capitalist personality, with decidedly mixed consequences to which we will return later. Marx surely had Shylock in mind when he wrote, quote, in the credit system, man replaces metal or paper as the mediator of exchange. The substance, the body, clothing, the spirit of money is not money, paper, but instead it is my personal existence, my flesh and blood, my social worth and status. Credit no longer actualizes money values in actual money, but in human flesh and human hearts. It's only recently, however, that critics have started to treat Shakespeare as a serious intellectual influence on Marx's economic theories. The reasons for this neglect are not hard to find. From the perspective of the 19th and 20th centuries, it seemed that the Industrial Revolution had so transformed economic circumstances as to render all pre-industrial economic commentary permanently obsolete. This opinion was held with particular conviction by Marxists. Furthermore, for most of the 20th century, Marxist theory was overshadowed by the demands of praxis, which led its exponents to emphasize materialism, economic determinism, and the vanguard role of the proletariat, none of which were especially relevant in Shakespeare's England. But I want to argue that the economic subject that is relevant at once to Shakespeare, to Marx, and to us today is usury. Marx thought of usury, which he called interest-bearing capital, as having been superseded by what he called industrial capital. He claims that, quote, interest-bearing capital, or as we may call it in its antiquated form, usurer's capital, belongs together with its twin brother merchant's capital to the antediluvian forms of capital which long precede the capitalist mode of production. Marx does acknowledge the role of usury in facilitating the dispossession of the English peasantry, and he discusses usury's contribution to the primitive accumulation of capital. He observes, however, that interest-bearing capital had been displaced from its central importance by industrial capital, and so he naturally devoted most of his critical attention to the industrial production-based economy. 
Today, however, the process has been reversed and the economy is dominated by interest-bearing capital. It's arguable that the financialized capitalism of the 21st century has returned us to the situation of Shakespeare's England, where the growing economic power and cultural influence of what was called usury was a matter of profound public concern. In a usurious society, human subjective activity, or labour power, is alienated in the objective symbolic form of money, which then acquires an illusory form of life with its own interests and aspirations, which often contradict those of the human beings whose activity it originally represents. As Shakespeare's contemporaries understood, usury institutes a reversal of subject and object. It subjectifies the object and it objectifies the subject. This confounding of subject and object was, until quite recently, regarded as the ultimate moral transgression. The history of thought is virtually unanimous that it's wrong to treat people as though they were things and wrong to treat things as though they were alive. Since usury is the practical manifestation of the reversal of subject and object, the systematic violation of the most basic principle of morality, it has traditionally been understood as an expression of pure evil, what Shakespeare's contemporaries call the work of Satan. In spite of this archaic terminology, it seems likely that any progressive politics in the 21st century must include an ethical critique of interest-bearing capital or usury. It seems possible that since discussion of usury has largely been absent from economic discussion in the Western world for over three centuries, that critique will take at least some of its inspiration from the intricate and sophisticated criticisms of usury that were elaborated by the thinkers of the past. Now, there is one very obvious danger in looking to the past for a critique of usury. Criticism of usury has historically been deeply imbued with anti-Semitism and any 21st century, century revival of that critique will need to be perpetually cognizant of this history and vigilant enough to purge itself of any possibility of continuing that nefarious tradition. Here again, Shakespeare can be useful to us. I think through the complicated and contradictory figure of Shylock, Shylock certainly embodies the canonical anti-Semitic canards of the day, especially those that posit a causal connection between his, his religion and his usury. But The Merchant of Venice also contain, contains the seeds of a critique of usury that can avoid anti-Semitism. It contains the seeds of what I'm calling an ethics of representation. The intellectual characteristics that Shakespeare attributes to Shylock's Jewishness, primarily literalism, legalism, and materialism, are not, of course, empirically based. Rather, they arise from Christian patriarchal constructions of Judaism. For instance, Deuteronomy 23.20 reads, Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother 
thou shalt not lend upon usury. Usury is incompatible with a shared community. It's an inherently hostile, aggressive act. Ancient, medieval and early modern Christian commentators claimed, wrongly, that the Jews interpreted this verse on a literal, ethnic level as prohibiting them from taking interest from fellow Jews but permitting them to take it from Gentiles. This is the source of Shylock's literalism. It's nothing to do with real Judaism, but it is an accurate diagnosis of the usurious mentality which attributes living power to the letter, to the sign, whether that sign is linguistic or financial. I would argue that since money is a symbol, any critique of usury must involve an ethics of representation. This is a topic with which the people of 16th and 17th century England were very familiar. The iconoclasm of the Protestant Reformation, the long campaign against magic known to history as the Great Witch Hunt, and the popular struggle against usury were all protests against the autonomous power of science. Seems to me that in our own time, the autonomous power of science has grown tyrannical and that the literature of early modern Europe, and perhaps the work of Shakespeare in particular, can provide us with the conceptual vocabulary that we need to understand that power, and perhaps even to oppose it. The history of money since Shakespeare's time shows a progressive process of abstraction, an evolution from a material form into ever more abstract symbolic forms. Until the 16th century, financial value was generally identified with gold bullion. But the discovery of America and the consequent 16th century inflations and debasements of the coinage made it obvious that financial value was something essentially different from the metal in which it resided. From there, it was a short conceptual step to the idea that value could abandon its material dwelling place altogether. In 17th century London, goldsmiths began to issue bank notes as symbolic representations of the gold in their coffers. And these notes were readily accepted in lieu of the bullion itself. Quite soon, the goldsmiths began to issue notes for multiple times the value of the physical gold they actually held. And these notes were also accepted as legal tender. Since these paper certificates were clearly useless in themselves and must therefore be symbolic in nature, people began to understand that money is an efficacious sign, a performative symbol, or in the language of Shakespeare's day, an idol. Until the late 20th century, the myth persisted that financial signs were referential in nature, that all the money in the world could in theory be redeemed for material gold bullion. But President Nixon's abandonment of the gold standard finally acknowledged that the value of money is purely symbolic, or we might say performative and non-referential. In today's world of credit cards and computerised bank transfers, 
Everyone understands the symbolic nature of money. At the same time, the economy itself has grown progressively more symbolic, which is to say more financial in nature. It's now dominated by derivatives, which as the name implies are symbols derived from other symbols. And at the same time as this, the economy has greatly expanded its influence, colonising and merging with other areas of culture, society and the psyche from which it was once excluded or at least distinguished. The process of financialization, in which the economy increasingly takes the form of financial transactions rather than the production and exchange of material commodities, has been defined as the mass commodification of debt. The banking crisis of 2008, for example, was called by the securitization the repackaging and resale of subprime mortgage debt. These days, even ostensibly production-based companies make most of their profits by trading in debt. Ford and General Motors make more money by trading in auto loans than they do by making or selling cars. The 21st century economy, indeed 21st century society and the 21st century mind are thus dominated by an intensified form of what Shakespeare's contemporaries called usury. And it's in his diagnoses and descriptions of usury that we find Shakespeare's most pertinent contribution to an understanding of today's economy. Shakespeare frequently presents usury as an urgent, timely concern. In Measure for Measure's prison scene, we meet, quote, Young Master Rash, he's in for a commodity of brown paper and old ginger, nine score seventeen pounds, of which he made five marks ready money. This is a topical reference to the London moneylender's practice of avoiding cash transactions by loaning out instead useless commodities for resale. Brown paper was a particular favourite. Shakespeare also depicts the surrogate Londons of ancient Greece and Rome as plagued by usury. The plebeians in Coriolanus condemn the Roman Senate for making, quote, edicts for usury to support usurers. Timon of Athens urges the rulers of Athens to, quote, banish usury that makes the Senate ugly. Of course, Marx reserved a particular enthusiasm for Timon of Athens. He notes the play's suggestion that the function of usury is to assist the primitive accumulation of capital by dispossessing the aristocracy. Although Shakespeare's England was not short on profligate aristocrats, however, in reality, it was mostly the peasants who were being dispossessed. The process euphemistically known to history as enclosure often involved usury as one of its weapons. It provided a proletariat who had no means of living but selling their labour power, and it concentrated wealth in sufficient quantities to enable its investment in capitalist enterprises. As Marx describes this process, quoting, usury undermines and ruins small peasant and small burger production. In short, all forms in which the producer still appears as the owner of his means of production, hence the popular hatred against usurers. 
Tynan is an example of what Marx called the extravagant landlord class, who, along with the smallholding peasantry, were the most visible victims of usury. Tynan develops a veritable obsession with usury, finding it everywhere. Self-exiled outside the walls of Athens, he questions whether the generosity that his former steward Flavius shows him is, quote, not a usuring kindness as rich men deal gifts expecting in return 20 for one. As we've seen, Marx thought the era when usury had been capital's dominant form was over, but he nevertheless regarded interest-bearing capital as the essence of capital, the form of capital that most clearly revealed its true nature. He called, quote, interest-bearing capital the form of capital par excellence. Usury, which makes the medium of exchange into an object of exchange, which commodifies money itself, was for Marx the logically, though not the historically, ultimate form of commodification. As Richard mentioned in the introduction, Marx based his understanding of commodification on Aristotle. And Aristotle is the bridge connecting Marx with Shakespeare. Richard mentioned R.H. Tawney's famous quotation describing Marx as the last of the schoolmen. Like the medieval scholastics, Marx's econom economics is based on Aristotle's distinction between use value and exchange value. Aristotle describes commodification as the imposition of a conventional symbol, exchange value, upon a natural essence, use value. The salient difference between exchange value and use value is that the former is part of nomos, or custom, while the latter is part of fusis, or nature. In the teleological morality, that the ancient and medieval church fathers elaborated from Aristotle, the confusion of fusis with nomos is an ethical, not just a logical transgression. It's the root of the objection to usury. By making money breed, usury treats exchange value as if it were a natural creature. Aristotle famously describes usury as an artificial tokos, or birth, quoting from Aristotle. It is rational to hate usury because its gain comes from money itself and not for that for which the sake of which money was invented. For money was brought into existence for the purpose of exchange, but interest increases the amount of money itself. And this is the actual origin of the Greek word tokos. Offspring resembles parent and interest is money born of money. Consequently, this form of the getting of wealth is of all forms the most contrary to nature. In Aristotle, usury is the logical conclusion of commodification. In usury, exchange value, which displaces use value in the initial act of basic barter, appears to come alive, starts to reproduce. The process of commodification began seriously to affect English society in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. This was not, as we might think today, a purely economic process, but one which involved every aspect of social, cultural and psychological life. Its impact on the English language was particularly obvious. On the first page of Capital, 
Marx observes that, quote, in English writers of the 17th century, we still often find the word worth used for use value and value for exchange value. This is quite in accordance with the spirit of a language that likes to use a Teutonic word for the real thing and a Romance word for its reflection. Marx's observation is borne out in a wide range of early modern writers. For example, Thomas Trahern's Centuries of Meditation declares that, quote, worthless and useless go together, but a piece of gold cannot be valued unless we know how it relates to clothes, to wine, to victuals, to the esteem of men and to the owner. Andrew Marvell's dialogue between the resolved soul and created pleasure demands, quote, were it not a price, who'd value gold? And that's worth naught that can be sold. In Much Ado About Nothing, Friar Francis reflects, quote, that what we have we prize not to the worth whilst we enjoy it, but being lacked and lost, why then we rack the value. In Troilus and Cressida, Helen of Troy provides a vehicle for the discussion of worth, value, and the relation between the two. Hector declares, brother, she is not worth what she doth cost the holding, to which Troilus replies, what is aught but as tis valued. To Hector's complaint that Helen is not worth the cost of keeping her, Troilus retorts that value is subjective. As Marx noted, Shakespeare is using worth to mean inherent, natural, objective value, and value to mean relational, customary, subjective value. Because it involves replacing something real with something illusory, an essence within appearance, Shakespeare and his contemporaries perceive commodification as an essentially magical phenomenon, because it imposes value upon worth. In A Comedy of Errors, Antiphilus of Syracuse reports that, as he wanders around the foreign streets of Ephesus, quote, some offer me commodities to buy. Even now a tailor called me in his shop and showed me silks that he had bought for me, and therewithal took measure of my body. Sure, these are but imaginary wiles, and Lapland sorcerers inhabit here. In King John, Philip the Bastard describes commodity as a force that can bypass reason and distort the conscious will. Quote, that same purpose changer, that sly devil, that broker that still breaks the pate of faith, that daily break vow. He calls commodity the bias of the world. But this bias is not natural. Indeed, Shakespeare uses the word to describe a fundamental distortion of natural creation. Quoting, Commodity, the bias of the world. The world, who of itself is pleased well, made to run even upon even ground, till this advantage, this vile drawing bias, this sway of motion, this commodity, makes it take head from all indifferency from all direction, purpose, course, intent. Philip does not criticise commodity for altering the purpose of particular things, but rather for disregarding all purpose. Commodification is the destroyer of essence, the enemy of telos. Timon of Athens denounces the unnatural distorting effects of exchange value in similar fashion. Addressing himself to gold, 
he declares, Thus much of this will make black white, foul fair, wrong right, base noble, old young, coward valiant. The effect of gold is the same as the effect of the witch's magic in Macbeth. It transforms fair into foul, subverting all natural essential identities and replacing them with their opposites. As is well known, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this section of Marx quite often today, Marx was highly impressed by Timon's diagnoses of money. In the economic and philosophical manuscripts, he calls attention to the two main characteristics that Timon attributes to money. Both are strikingly pertinent to the postmodern condition. Marx's second comment on Timon's speech notes that money is, quote, the common whore, the common pimp, of people and of nations. In both Marx and Shakespeare, this connection between commodification and prostitution, and between usury and unnatural sex in general, is conceptual and historical, as well as metaphorical. The source of the connection, once again, is Aristotle, who presents usury and sodomy as twin violations of natural teleology. Usury makes the naturally barren substance of money breed, while sodomy makes naturally fertile sexuality barren. According to this logic, we might expect that a society dominated by usury will also be dominated by concupiscent sexuality, that is, by what Shakespeare's contemporaries call sodomy. The term sodomy does not, of course, refer to homosexuality alone, but to any non-reproductive sexual activity. Dante famously imprisons usurers and sodomites together in the seventh circle of hell. Miles Moss's claim that usury was, quote, a sodomio naturae, a kind of sodomy in nature, was proverbial and axiomatic in Shakespeare's England. As Francis Mears sums it up in 1634, quote, as pederastry is unlawful because it is against kind, so usury and increase by gold and silver is unlawful because against nature. Nature hath made them sterile and barren, and usury makes them procreative. In Shakespeare, prostitution frequently functions as what Jean Howard calls an illustrative synecdoche to convey the impact of commodification when applied to a human being. Philip the Bastard encapsulates the capacious early modern understanding of commodity when he calls it this bored, this broker, this all-changing word. The very word commodity was a frequent synonym for prostitute, as in 2 Henry VI, when one of the rebels demands, when shall we go to Cheapside and take up commodities upon our bills? Shakespeare repeats the joke in Much Ado About Nothing, where Baraccio remarks, we are like to prove a goodly commodity being taken up of these men's bills. In The Taming of the Shrew, Tranio takes up the analogy. T'was a commodity lay fretting by you, will bring you gain or perish on the seas. <coughs> Catherine had been fretting or wasting away, her value depreciating like an unused sum of money, but being put out on the market, she will bring profit. This figural connection between commodification and prostitution 
led naturally to a conventional parallel between usury and pimping. Shakespeare returns to the analogy often. In Troilus and Cressida, the pimp Pandarus is called a broker lackey, broker being a synonym for a particular species of usurer. Measure for measures, pimp Pompey laments, thank you, "'Twas never merry world, since of the two usuries, the merriest, that's prostitution, was put down, and the worser, that's money lending, allowed by order of law. In the debtor's prison, Pompey comments, one would think it were Mistress Overdone's own house, but here be many of her old customers. Usury and concupiscent sexuality were parallel violations of natural teleology, diverting money and sex away from their natural purposes. The fool in Timon of Athens delights in this riddling symmetry. Quote, I think no usurer but has a fool to his servant. My mistress is one and I am her fool. When men come to borrow of your masters, they approach sadly and go away merry, but they enter my master's house merrily and go away sadly. Timon himself alludes to this connection when he tells the prostitute Timandra, be a whore still, they love thee not, but use thee. I've described elsewhere how Shakespeare's sonnets deploy the conceptual relationship between usury and sodomy in order to advance their romantic action. At first, the speaker appears to have the plan of loaning his young male lover out to the female gender and reaping usury in the form of offspring. Um, as it turns out, however, uh, the lady, as anti-usury campaigners often pointed out, retains possession of the loan. She ends up in possession of the young man and the speaker is left to lament um, that she is the usurer that puts forth all to use while his unnatural attempt to use usury has deprived him of his beloved. Him have I lost by my unkind abuse. The word abuse is frequently employed to mean the perversion of anything away from its Aristotelian telos. To abuse an icon, for example, was to worship it. Stephen Gosson famously declared the theatre itself a school of abuse, dedicated to inculcating false consciousness in the audiences by training them to mistake representation for reality. Marx's other comment on Timon's speech notes Shakespeare's depiction of money as an idol. Quote, it is the visible divinity, the transformation of all human and natural properties into their contraries, the universal confounding and distorting of things. As in Goethe's Faust, which Marx discusses immediately before he turns to Shakespeare, money is figured as a magical power which can violently override and occlude the natural essence of things. This is why, in Capital, Marx observes, quote, in the case of interest-bearing capital, the self-reproducing character of capital appears purely as an occult property. I think we should take seriously Marx's description of usury as an occult process. That's certainly how it appeared to Shakespeare's contemporaries. Like usury, magic and idolatry bestow an artificial imaginary power on symbols. 
They assume that symbols can do things, that they can become performative or efficacious. The idea that financial signs can reproduce was both idolatrous in itself and intimately connected to religious idolatry. In 1631, Francis Lenten denounces a usurer because, quote, gold and silver are his idols or images. He keeps them prisoners under lock and key till bills and bonds give security for their safe return with another petty impersonal idol called interest. In 1595, Miles Moss put it clearly, can the grand enemy erect up any yoke fellow to match with idolatry but only usury? In conclusion, it seems clear that the people of early modern England understood usury as an essentially ethical question. The economists of the 21st century generally try to eliminate ethical considerations from their discipline altogether. So it seems logical for us to consult the literature of the past as a means of ethically evaluating usury's dominance over our own society. As I said earlier, the most pressing ethical task facing anyone attempting such a critique is the elimination of anti-Semitism. It's true that part of the reason for the connection between Judaism and usury is empirical. In large parts of Europe, for long periods of time, only Jews were allowed to practice usury, and usury was the only means of living legally available to Jews. In addition to such empirical connections, however, and far more influential on the imagination of Shakespeare's England, a dense network of tropological associations between Judaism and usury has developed, and the deconstruction of such associations seems both highly desirable and eminently feasible. The figure of Shylock is one obvious starting point for an ethics of representation, since he's so fundamental historically to the discourses of both anti-Semitism and anti-usury. But there are other possible starting points too. As Richard mentioned, Marx was notoriously still using Judaism as a synonym for usury into the 1840s. In Marx too, the connection is primarily tropological in nature. And in order both to demonstrate that fact and to understand it, we will need to grasp the history connecting Judaism with literalist hermeneutics in the imagination of the Christian West. This is part of what I mean by an ethics of representation. I've mentioned Deuteronomy's distinction between strangers and brothers before, and Shylock too is represented as a parodically extreme literalist. In his attempt to kill Antonio, he automatically has recourse to the letter of the law, the ethical preeminence of nomos, Asked to have a doctor ready to tend Antonio's wounds, Shylock's only response is to ask, is it so nominated in the bond? The pattern is repeated when Antonio responds with scorn to Shylock's deployment of the story of Jacob and Laban. Was this inserted to make interest good, or is your gold and silver ewes and rams? Antonio dismisses the significance of the tale by pointing to the difference between vehicle and tenor. What is true of sheep is not necessarily true of the money that the sheep represent. But Shylock's cynical aside asserts that this is precisely the distinction that usury destroys. I cannot tell, 
I make it breed as fast. Sherlock insists on a literal interpretation. His money does not merely resemble a living creature, it has acquired the essential, definitive quality of life, which is the ability to reproduce. Shylock's money is not figuratively, but literally alive. Or rather, perhaps, in one of Shakespeare's many anticipations of the postmodern condition, the figurative has become indistinguishable from the real. Thank you.